ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Good morning. Welcome to AM. It's Monday the 26th of February. I'm Sabra Lane coming to you from Nipaluna, Hobart. There are warnings that Australia's economic prospects and social cohesion will be damaged unless the nation increases the number of university graduates. A major review of the tertiary sector says it's a matter of urgency that Australia significantly boosts the number of graduates from universities and the vocational education sector. It's set name for four out of five Australians to have a degree by 2050 with more students from disadvantaged backgrounds. Here's political reporter Evelyn Manfield. For university students in courses like teaching and nursing, not only are their placements unpaid, but they have to take time off work and in some cases travel and stay far from home for weeks at a time. I think it would make a tremendous impact on on people being on a paid placement. Amelia Davies became a nurse last year. Across her three-year degree, she did more than five months of placement three of which were away from home and her two kids. Accommodation alone cost her $1,200. So that doesn't really factor in the time off work, fuel costs or any of those sort of day-to-day living. I have not been game enough to do those calculations, but I imagine it would, would be a lot. She says some of her classmates were far worse off. It's a problem identified in a major review into the university sector. It recommends the federal government pays for placements in areas of skill shortages like nursing and teaching, and the private sector would pay for placements in other fields. It would just be really great to have that sacrifice recognised for people, especially in regional areas, that we want to do this degree, we, we want to have it finished, we're passionate about what we do and just having that bit of extra support can help people realise their dreams and do what they're always wanted to do. The review also calls on unis to better help students find part-time work in areas relevant to their study, and it suggests increasing income support. It's all part of a pursuit to get 80% of working-age Australians tertiary educated by 2050. Greens Education spokesperson Maureen Faruqi says the current cost of university study is turning people away. We know that students at the moment are making a decision after high school to not go to uni because they don't want to end up with tens of thousands of dollars of debt, which takes a lifetime to pay off. If we really want universities and higher education to be accessible and for everyone to have that opportunity to go to uni, then we must make university free and we must actually scrap the burden of student debt. The review has also called for changes to HECS. Education Minister Jason Clare yesterday indicated there could be relief on the way, saying if the government pushed ahead with the proposal, someone earning $75,000 would pay about $1,000 less a year in repayments. The report says we've got to make HECS simpler and fairer. Shadow Education Minister Sarah Henderson says the government needs to act on HEX quickly. We would welcome anything that makes it more affordable for students to go to university. We're very disappointed we've seen so little action on escalating student debt 
Uh, the hex debts have gone through the roof under this government. Uh, last year alone, debts were up by 7.1%. The opposition has criticised the government for not having a plan ready, but Chair of Universities Australia, Professor David Lloyd, says it's a complicated issue that warrants careful consideration. Given the complexity and scale of the report, and given the fact that the implementation process, even if you contemplate just the, 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 the doubling of, of participation, in the horizon, so that's going to be an expensive undertaking. So I would expect any government to, to sit back and think about how that can be realised and phased. The government says it'll respond further over the coming months. Evelyn Manfield there. It's no secret that kids from lower socioeconomic backgrounds are less likely to finish school and go to university than their better-off peers. The federal government is embracing the reviews aimed to get more disadvantaged students into tertiary education so that they make up a significant proportion of the proposed four in five Australians with a degree or vocational certificate by 2050. Any guest examines how that change could happen. As the daughter of a migrant from Blacktown in Western Sydney, Annalise Alker is still amazed she won a Rhodes Scholarship, one of the world's most prestigious academic honours. This is kind of beyond the realm of what we thought could ever be possible and, and achievable. While English was Annalise Alka's first language, at home her family spoke a lot of Arabic. I really struggled with English. I, I got a D in my early years of high school and that was a real area that I struggled with. Um, and again, it wasn't until I had a teacher who was familiar with Arabic that was able to identify that. In fact, she credits particular school teachers and uni professors for her success, along with her parents who strive to send her to an independent school. So it was mainly a single income household. Um, my father was a tiler and that work was quite unstable given his, his pre-existing health conditions from serving in the Lebanese army. So for the majority of our upbringing, it was a single income with my mum oftentimes even working um, up to seven days a week. Annalise Alka also worked several jobs to fund her double degree in security studies and media. Not only is it the obvious, sometimes I can't dedicate as much time to my studies as I'd like because I have to go to work, um, but it's oftentimes missing out on those additional networking dinners um, or events. Networking was something Dr Kay Wilson found difficult when she studied law. And I remember going up to a group of girls um, and they immediately asked me what school I went to and I told them a local government school. And they looked at me blankly and I felt really small and like I didn't belong. Dr Wilson is now a postdoctoral research fellow with the Melbourne Law School and Social Equity Institute. They've always been, you know, very bright, disadvantaged students who have gone to university but we know that those who do attend university are disproportionately those from much wealthier families and from private schools. Only 17% of undergrads are from lower socioeconomic backgrounds. I think we probably all know about what the financial um, issues are. Um, so some students from lower socioeconomic backgrounds might feel that financially it's out of reach for them. But there's also, for lower socioeconomic students, university can feel like a very intimidating place. And Dr Wilson says an absence of role models is among many other social barriers. I even had friends from high school who fell pregnant and dropped out at 16 and for them that was a normal thing for them to do. So she welcomes the university's accords proposals such as needs-based funding and paid work placements. I think this could be a real game changer. You know, there is such a thing as a poverty trap 
and, you know, giving people access to, um, you know, better education and higher education is one of the probably best ways of trying to break that poverty trap. But she says such students will require greater academic and pastoral support. That's backed by the president of the National Tertiary Education Union, Dr Alison Barnes. The Accord report is an ambitious uh, uh, reform blueprint and it has much potential to create better universities, but only if it's implemented and funded correctly. She says better resourced tertiary education will help disadvantaged students make the transition. Any guest. A man accused by Rwandan authorities of participating in one of the worst atrocities of the 20th century is living in Australia's suburbs. A joint Four Corners and Guardian Australia investigation has identified two men that Rwanda is seeking to extradite from Australia. Both allegedly participated in the country's 1994 genocide against its Tutsi minority, where more than half a million people were slaughtered in just over 100 days. Guardian Australia's international affairs correspondent Ben Doherty went to Rwanda to investigate. The warning, there are some details that might disturb some listeners. How are you? I'm pleased to meet you. Thank you for agreeing to meet with me, sir. It was here in Rwanda's eastern Ngoma province that Alphonse Hadiga Kamana says he joined a mob that killed a man named Busy Mungu. Ruka Shengabo told me to beat him, and then I beat him. I beat him three times with a stick, and Ruka Shengabo said that it wasn't enough. Hadiga Kamana says other men in the mob then continued to beat Busy Mungu. He died like that. Frodward Rukashangabo, the man who Alphonse Hadiga Kamana claims ordered him, is now an Australian citizen, presently working as a driving instructor in suburban Brisbane. In 2007, he was convicted in absentia by Rwanda's grassroots Gachacha courts, set up to try tens of thousands of genocide suspects as part of a truth and reconciliation process. In Rwanda, we obtained a copy of the records which state he was convicted after being accused of involvement in several killings. But the records are brief and incomplete and it's unclear which deaths he was held responsible for. Human rights organisations argued that the Gachacha courts did not guarantee a fair trial, raising concerns about the lack of legal representation for the accused, untrained judges and the use of hearsay testimony. Rukashangabo did not respond to detailed allegations, but in an earlier message said he was the victim of smear campaigns and false allegations. Hello, Goretti. Yes. It's nice to see you. How are you? You're very well. In Rwanda's southern Nyanza district, Goretti Uwesenga identifies the names of relatives allegedly killed by another man Rwanda believes is in Australia. My uncle and my, my brother... In 2017, the Rwandan government issued an indictment for a man called Celestin Munyabaranga, who used to be Goretti's headmaster. She alleges she saw Munyabaranga ordering attacks in her village. Munyabaranga would give orders for who to kill and who to leave. Take that one back, we'll kill them later, or finish this one at once. I knew it because I was one of the people targeted. I'd see it from a distance when I was hiding in the sorghum plantations, although he didn't see me. According to the indictment, Munyabaranga allegedly set up and manned a roadblock around the corner from Goretti's house where at least 20 Tutsi civilians were killed with traditional weapons. Four Corners and Guardian Australia have not been able to reach Munyabaranga but have located his immediate family in southern Brisbane. A family member says he is innocent. Four Corners and Guardian Australia have confirmed that an indictment for Frodwad Rukashangabo was sent to Australia last month, but we've not seen it. We will leave no stone unturned 
until justice is done. The head of Rwanda's Genocide Fugitive Tracking Unit, John Bosco Sibiantore, urges the Australian government to extradite both men to face new trials in Rwanda or to prosecute them here. We invite the Australian police, together with the prosecution, to come to Rwanda because it's where the crime scene is, is located. It's where witnesses will be found. But the Rwandan government has been accused of using genocide allegations against political rivals, and some countries have refused to extradite suspects to Rwanda due to concerns they would not receive a fair trial. Kachacha Court expert Dr Nicola Palmer says Australia needs to look into it. I think one has to be cautious, as we've said, around the evidence that is initially presented in the indictment, but I do think it prompts and, and warrants further investigation. The Attorney-General Mark Dreyfus declined Four Corners interview request, but a spokesperson said they do not comment on individual cases. Guardian Australia's Ben Doherty. In the United States, Republican presidential hopeful Nikki Haley takes her campaign to Michigan today, vowing to fight on despite a bruising defeat to Donald Trump in her home ground over the weekend. Nikki Haley's failed to win a state so far, so what exactly is she doing in the race to become the grand old party's 2024 candidate? North America correspondent Barbara Miller reports. Minutes after polls close, Donald Trump has declared the winner of the South Carolina Republican primary. Many here at the Charleston County Republican Party think the former president's fourth straight win means Nikki Haley, the only remaining serious challenger, should see the writing on the wall. She just needs to come to that realization and not prolong it because it's hurting the party. In her concession speech in a downtown Charleston hotel, the former South Carolina governor was putting a positive spin on her loss. I know 40% is not 50%. But I also know 40% is not some tiny group. But it's not really about the percentages. It's about how many delegates you get. Donald Trump is streaks ahead and could reach the magic number to secure the nomination by mid-March. Rule number one, when you deal with Nikki Haley, is never, ever, ever, never count her out, underestimate her, or think she's dead politically. Mike Burgess is a history teacher from Lexington County, South Carolina. He's hoping for a late upset scenario where Donald Trump gets enough delegates but is rejected at the national convention mid-year. The man is going to be spending countless days and hours in court, and these are not parking ticket charges. These are federal offenses. He aided and abetted an insurrection. So yes, there is a very real possibility that his own misdeeds are going to knock him out and that she will be the nominee. I don't think it's far-fetched. I don't think it's a Hollywood script. Polls suggest that if Nikki Haley were to prevail, she could beat the likely Democratic nominee, Joe Biden, in a head-to-head. Gibbs Knotts is professor of political science at the College of Charleston. This election is going to be decided in suburban Georgia, suburban Wisconsin, suburban Pennsylvania, and I don't see how highly educated suburban women are going to necessarily all of a sudden decide they like Donald Trump. Trump is a much weaker general election candidate than Nikki Haley. So far, donors apparently keen to invest in a possible alternative to Donald Trump are standing by Nikki Haley. But if South Carolina wasn't her last stand, it doesn't feel too far away. 
This is Barbara Miller in Charleston, South Carolina, reporting for AM. Is it possible to protect the heritage value of an historic town and build an eight-storey apartment block? That question's at the heart of a battle playing out in the Victorian gold rush town of Ballarat. Facing a big housing shortage, the town needs new dwellings quickly. The council says one way to do that is to build more apartments. But not everyone in the town is ready for Ballarat to start growing upwards, as Oliver Gordon reports. Hamish Hamilton's tattoo parlour is one of many contemporary businesses nestled among the opulent 19th century buildings of Ballarat. The long-time local has noticed the sizeable increase to the town's population since the pandemic. Lots of people from the city, uh, even people from Geelong. Yeah, a lot of people have moved here, definitely. To accommodate the extra people living in Ballarat, an eight-storey, 70-apartment complex has been proposed. He supports the project, which is just metres from his shop in Ballarat's historic centre. To have that there is just going to make the area grow, I think. It's be good for our business. Not everyone is on board, though. Ballarat Heritage Watch's Stuart Kelly says the development, which would be Ballarat's tallest, should it win planning approval, won't fit. The question is how to develop the higher-density housing near the CBD without compromising the two- and three-storey historic centre of the city. The local resident says his heritage group has proposed changes to council, but they're not listening. A small number of the councillors are very sympathetic. A larger number make comments such as Ballarat needs to grow up with the emphasis on the word up, and that's a problem for us. Across regional Australia, populations have increased by an average of 12% on pre-COVID levels. Some councils have already responded. In regional New South Wales, Dubbo has a 15-storey complex in the works and the coastal town of Marimbula is considering proposals for three five-storey apartment buildings. Des Hudson is the mayor of Ballarat and says the eight-storey building proposed for the town is necessary. We cannot continue to live in the past. We are a growing population currently at 117,000. We grow at a rate of about 2.1% per year. So in the next 15 odd years, we're going to hit 150,000 people living and choosing to call Ballarat home. He says the growing cost of building the infrastructure needed to keep Ballarat growing outwards is too high. Whether it's bus transport, whether it's new schools, whether it's shopping precincts, someone has to pay for that. If this project is approved, it won't be the first apartment block in Ballarat. Melbourne developers Nightingale Housing completed a five-storey, 27-unit complex in the town in 2022. CEO Dan McKenna says gaining community approval is key. We held public information sessions. We, we sort of held open days and really talked to people, engaged with local councils, just to, I guess, gauge the temperature of where people were at and then um, opened up the project to the public and, and we're really surprised at how popular it actually was in terms of a sales sense. It was the first time the developer built a project outside a capital city. It's now looking to take its model elsewhere in regional Australia. Cities like Wollongong and Newcastle and even places outside of Brisbane like the, the Sunshine Coast and the Gold Coast, um, obviously Ballarat and Bendigo and places like that are definitely places we're looking to take what we do to. The ABC contacted Hooger Property, the group behind the proposed new building in Ballarat. A spokesperson said the building would not impact Ballarat's historical sightline and could act as a stimulus to aid the preservation of the town's historic precinct. 
Oliver Gordon there, and that's AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm Sabra Lane. Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily Podcast. As it battles with an economic slowdown and an ageing society, Beijing has recorded a second population decline in a row. But why is a falling birth rate necessarily a bad thing when you have a population exceeding 1.4 billion people? Look for the ABC News Daily Podcast on the ABC Listen app.